Interstate Batteries has been a proud supporter of the Sportsman's Nation since day one. They offer just about every battery under the sun, from car and truck batteries to batteries for your trail cameras and rangefinders. Select retail locations even offer cell phone repair and cracked screen repair. Find a local retail location at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the Land and Legacy Podcast. We're your hosts, Adam Keith and Matt Dye. This is your number one resource for all things land. If you're interested in conservation, habitat management, hunting strategy, and rural real estate, this is the podcast for you. All right, guys, welcome back. Land and Legacy Podcast. Um, it's Adam here this week. I'm going to interview one of the Land and Legacy clients that I visited with back a few years ago in southeast Kansas. This man is a, is, is a one-man band when it comes to a lot of the work that gets done over there. Uh, has the help of a few buddies, but for the most part, most of the heavy lifting is done himself. It was a great property to start with, but he's kind of revamped and is headed in a in a new direction where it's a lot more involvement in in places outside of food plots. And so he is uh, Mr. Aaron Woodward, great friend of ours. And actually, um, as we kind of continue to add more content to our YouTube channel, video series, you're going to be able to check out his hunts on youtube one of them will be already dropped at the time you listen to this podcast so go over to youtube to check out the hunt it really correlates with this week's podcast and then also wait for later on in the week as hunt number two drops so um, if you could do us a favor and go subscribe to our youtube channel so you don't miss those and be sure to click the little bell to get notified each time we release a new video because it's a lot of hunting content right now but it's soon to shift over to a lot of habitat content. Uh, I know it's something you guys have been asking for for years uh, as we've tried to do it, but guys, we've been so overwhelmed with the amount of consults and business that you brought us just from the podcast. It's been hard for us to get to the farms and film all of our content, but we're trying to change that for you guys to go more visual uh, or just as much visual as we are audio version like you get here on the podcast. So um, we also want to thank one of our partners that helped this podcast um, become possible. And that's Vortex Optics. Uh, we've been working with them for several years now. Uh, Matt and I have got just all kinds of optics that we use from rangefinders to scopes to red dots on our on our turkey shotguns um, and, of course, binoculars. So, um Go check them out at vortexoptics.com. If you don't think that they are just an optics company, they have some amazing apparel over there as well. I'm currently actually wearing one of them outside um, on my patio, so we record these podcasts. And you can use Legacy 20 for a 20% off discount on all the apparel that they have from hats, stocking caps, gloves, socks, and, of course, flannels. One of my all-time favorites. So go check it out, vortexoptics.com. And enjoy this week's podcast with Mr. Aaron Woodward. I think this is probably the best scene or the best place I've found to record a podcast. You know, we've recorded somewhere upwards to, I think we're closer to 400 than we are 300. So there's a lot of podcasts out there. 
this is the first time I've ever been sitting in my truck on my family farm, staring off into the fields and the woods. So, uh, and it's November, it's November something, uh, it's early November and, um, man, it is just the right time of the year, an exciting time of the year. And enough of hearing me chat, I'm going to introduce you to our guest this week, a Land and Legacy client, uh, Mr. Aaron Woodward. Aaron, are you there? Yeah, absolutely, man. Thank you for having me. Um, yeah, November 6th. This is, um, I think, starting here and going forward is, you know, well, a lot of people say the best time to be out in the woods chasing these whitetails, you know, during the rut. That's right. That's right. And, and not only is it optimal time to catch deer on their feet throughout uh, throughout the day, but it's also just a beautiful time of the year to be outside. Um I don't know where you're at. Well, I think you're in Kansas right now, but uh, here I am in in good old Doug County, um, Missouri, and it, the leaves are just beautiful right now. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, in southeast Kansas, and uh, on the stand this morning, just watching the birds come to life. You know, we had an owl land about uh, 80 yards from us, and we had some uh, you know crows and other birds just land all. It was it was gorgeous. My daughter loved it. Oh man, how how many frosts have you had out there so far? In Kansas, I'm not not too sure, but there was a frost this morning when we got out there, and yeah. uh, it slowly, you know, defrosted as the morning went on. But I, I think we probably had, at least a second. Yeah, I think we had two or three here. Uh, very heavy frost this morning. My truck said 28 when I pulled into the gate, and it was sun was just starting. I was not hunting for the people that are are think I was late. I was uh, I was coming down here to take care of some cows and do some other stuff without a buck tag. It's kind of weird. I've rolled into November and I don't even have a tag right now. If there was a giant show up, I couldn't hunt him till November thirteenth, opening day of Missouri firearm season. Well, that's not a bad thing considering <laughs> uh, the picture you posted recently, man. Yeah, yeah. I think of uh, congratulations. Yeah, I appreciate it. It's you know, uh, it it's it's kind of one of those bittersweet moments, and I I, I know my it ate my brother up. He shot that buck in September in uh, a farm that we hunt that had alfalfa. And uh, you can see that hunt over on the YouTube channel. Um, but also with mine, it was like, oh, this is all. Wait, 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 wait. Time out. Both of us don't have tags for the first week and a half of November before gun season. Oh, this is weird. Like, what are we going to do? Like, chat. we'll kind of try to film Matt some, try to film Seth, another buddy of ours, try to film Dad. And then uh, my HVAC gets replaced. So Chad's been filming, and I've been uh, playing, uh, trying to take care of the house duties. So you know how that goes, Aaron. It's not always uh, uh, what we plan out for the fall. 100%. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, Family and household first. That's right. That's right. So uh, we got Aaron on because he's got he had a, a, a phenomenal season last year um, that really just uh, – Man, when I looked back at the footage that you sent over and we were trying to prep and get it ready for this fall, I was like, okay, yeah, no, I really need to dive into this. And Man, you filmed so much stuff that it's kind of like, I'm going to hand this over to the guy who edits, and I can't wait to see what you turn this into. And I watched it, and I was like, wow. Like, honestly, I, I forget what Matt said, but he said, Aaron's stuff, outstanding. For self-filming, I, I, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb and assume that you haven't done a ton of filming for other shows in the past like this is just kind of learn as you go 
None. So I've done a little filming throughout the years, you know, even dating back to the late nineties for that matter. It, but I mean, nothing serious. And, you know, it was always just for fun. And yep. but, uh, this is the first year like, you know what, I'm going to do this. You know, Matt and Adam said, you know, do it, send it to me. I was like, okay, I'm going to do it right. And yeah. Uh, so I, I read, you know, read some articles and watched a lot of, um, you know, YouTubes on, you know, a lot of guys out there that are really good at self-filming and a lot of great tips and ideas. Yeah. And, uh, I was able to implement them. Yeah. And not only that, you implement them, but you were able to really capitalize on great deer movement as well. And uh, for you guys that are listening, this, this podcast is going to be kind of like part one, part two. Part one being the podcast where you get to listen and hear it, the audio version. And then part two is jump over to YouTube and see the video or the videos, because I'm going to share two of them this week. And uh, you'll get to see your Kansas hunt and your Missouri hunt. So we're going to cover those, kind of the the rundown, if you will, of those hunts here. And then we're also going to talk about the habitat um, that's gone into into that property, mainly the Kansas one. That's the one I visited with you. Uh, Kyle was with me uh, in December of 2019. Is that correct? Or 2018? I think it was 2019. It was right after I killed uh, the biggest buck of my life, 2019. Yep. Yep. And that was a 202? Well, on the ground green, he was right at 200 green. And then uh, on the final, after drying out, he grossed 193 and a few eights. And then he netted a typical booner like 173 and five eights. Man, yeah. oh, man. Yeah. And I, I, I don't know if I'll ever do it again, but it was a yeah. blessing. Man. yeah oh man what do you you know you think back at like some of the things and you own the farm how long when you Uh, shot 2016 2016 is when i acquired it so you bought the farm and three years later you shot that buck yeah and that's that was you know that's every guy when they buy that farm you know they have these you know these goals and objectives and you know one of my goals and objectives was to someday kill a potential booner and I didn't think I was going to do it that soon. It just, you know, so it happens that, you know, all those cards just fell in a row and yep. it came together. <clears throat> it, it's uh, kind of one of those that when you look at good areas and good neighborhoods, that there's a few already there. Not every year, but it seems to be more regular than bad neighborhoods and bad regions um, where it may be one slips through the crack every five years and everybody talks about it in those bad neighborhoods. But then you go to good neighborhoods and it's just like the, the default buck or the kind of the average is much greater than those poor neighborhoods. Um, and I think you've experienced that now, Aaron, with kind of hunting some other areas, um, that, that seeing that, wow, you know, growing up in timber country and then leaving that and going hunting these other areas, it's, it's, uh, it's easier to find those bucks than, than trying to just, build them up from the, from the, from the, st- from the rocks that are there, uh, on Couldn't the agree more. country. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. We, we, we grew up, you and I a little bit similar in the sense that, you know, I grew up hunting the Ozark mountains of Arkansas and I believe you were in the Ozark mountains of Missouri Yeah. and oh my goodness, challenging, right? Yes. Uh, and especially with the deer herds back in the, you know, the nineties and early two mm-hmm. thousands, they, they weren't what they are now. Few and far between and what was there didn't have any age on it. Because they got, <laughs> if it did, it was just a matter of time for that, 
that holler or that uh that draining stitch that he was in got pushed out and on a man drive and and shot oh yeah yeah so um let's jump into you know when you when you uh you purchase this farm 2016 uh, you killed a giant in 2019 you roll in uh i I meet up with you and you're already in the middle of a a timber stand improvement project you were already in the middle of invasive species control um, you had a couple of areas that were going to be either CRP plantings or turned back into crops or converted to crops to try to control some more invasives. Walk us through a little bit about um, your farm and your overall goals. Yep, absolutely. So, you know, I think preceding the farm purchase, you know, I was researching, learning, you know, we'd had a family farm that I grew up on in Arkansas. So, you know, I've been reading to some extent about that you know, and all the things I could do for that farm, you know, however, there was, it was limitations, you know, being in the Ozark mountains, my dad doesn't want fire on the property. So at some point I was like, you know what, I'm really going to focus on a farm uh, strategically, you know, somewhere where it's got some farming income, uh, somewhere where you can have CRP and you can have the, the genetics and, you know, get the age structure. So, you know, I started focusing on Southeast Kansas and, and uh, you know, as far as acquiring the farm, that's a whole other story. But, um, after acquiring it, you know, I kind of started making a list of, you know, goals and objectives and things I wanted to do. And, you know, a lot of my knowledge came from, you know, there's a couple of good habitat books out there. I can't quote them off the top of my, top of my head. But then, you know, for instance, I think you were on Growing Deer TV for a while. You know, I, I, I used to watch the heck out of that, when, especially when it first came out. Yeah. Um, great content. And, uh, and then, I mean, you guys have had great content even back to what, 2018? Yeah, we we launched the podcast in 2017. 2017. Uh, yep, in so. the spring of 2017. It took a little while to get, I mean, you know, with any business, like from building up from grassroots, it's just like it takes a little while to start getting some, some eyeballs or some ear holes in our, and, and when you're doing a podcast, you're trying to catch your ear, not their eyes. So, um, you know, it takes a little bit, but yeah, 20, 2017 and then, um, you know, 2018 was a big year in growth for us. And, uh, you know, it sounds like when you found our, when our, when you found our podcast. Oh yeah. Consumed them. Yeah. Great content. And I, I, I really suggest everybody to go back those early days too, and start, you know, listening to them on road trips or whatever you may be doing, mowing the lawn. And, and it's amazing what you'll glean from them. Um, so, you know, coming into buying the farm that year, obviously my goal, I got it in late uh, fall, right before hunting season was to, you know, get some food on the property. There was zero food. And so, um, you know, I focused on just getting one or two food plots established. And it's so like, you know, get a deer down. I had a great year. I ended up, you know, passing some, you know, young bucks and uh, later on killed a uh, five-year-old uh, 10 point biggest buck of my life up to that point after, you know, hunting Ozarks all my days. So I was just like, Oh my, what, this is the best. So <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Coming into the coming into the spring, I think my uh, my next goals were battling uh, invasives. You know, my farm was terrible. It was as far as Ceresia, and actually, that was one of the things that almost turned me off of not buying the farm. It was it was that bad. Yeah. I mean, literally, the, all the CRP throughout was um, almost a monoculture of Ceresia lesbidesia. There was a few fields that had other species visible when I was walking through it. Yeah. And it was that intimi- It was that intimidating to me. And you're in Kansas, um, which has some. You know, an act. The government's active in trying to find those uh, areas where there's horrible invasives. 
you know, I haven't personally heard of anybody being fined, but it is it, Kansas has the potential of fining landowners for not taking care of their invasives. For sure. Or, or just not renewing your CRP contract or ending it, terminate it early. So I was on the tail end of that contract. So before I would even go into contract, you know, I made sure that the, the current landowners, I got at least one spray job on, on their dime. So that was part of my deal. Yeah. Was, you know, and my, and my negotiation was like, you know what? I'll, I'll buy the farm, but you guys have to pay for one spring before yeah. we um, go through. And that way, at least I can show the, the NRCS office or whoever may come inspect that, you know what? This is a priority for me. And uh, I, I'm going to get on this. And so yeah. after that, after that was done, it actually did a pretty good job for the first year and a half. And, uh, and then the following year I had to come back. I got a you know big spray rig and uh, started piecemealing it out with remedy Mm-hmm. Um, and, and escort, you know, depending on the time of year yep. and uh, the stage of it. You know, pasture guard's another good one, but just a little bit more pricey. Yep. Um, but, uh, and then after that, I think we were talking about timber stand improvement. So, yeah. you know, there's some great programs depending on the state um, where the, the state or the county will, will pay for, you know, the timber stand improvement projects. And, I mean, not only you're getting one paid to do your work two you're you're benefiting the existing timber on your property and three you're you're really creating you know habitat for everything everything you know for your for your turkeys for your for your quails along your edges for your your deer as far as you know the bedding and the browse um and so i was like this is a win-win-win deal i mean i love being out and then getting a little bit of money to improve my own property this i mean no brainer yeah sign me up so um the way they got that started was, you know, contacting a local forester, you know, writing a plan up with her, you know, actually walking the property and um, kind of coming up, you know, with what my goals are and my objectives and, you know, how I want this property to be. And, you know, she takes all that in consideration. You know, if, you're, if your goal is, is wildlife as it is much as, as timber, then she's going to, you know, take that in consideration, help you decide which tree species may stay or may go. And um, so once we got that written up, I, you know, applied and it took about a year and a half to get approved and, I think you were when I consulted you guys. It was it was in just starting, right? Yep, you had just. I mean, the forester was on the property the day I I consulted with you. Oh, that's right. Yep. Awesome. Yep. And uh, I remember you were talking about that, and it was like, okay, this is you know this is what I would recommend. You, you know, trying to improve the forest because much of your landscape uh, that's timbered has been unmanaged for years and years, and uh, you know. It, seeing these limited resources for your area um, not just from a hunting standpoint but from a year-round forage standpoint it was like this is a a huge void we have here so timber stand improvement is a huge win on this property oh yeah and uh, so you did you know timber stand improvement and then in fact uh, one of the other projects that we kind of had drawn out for you was this conversion of I don't even know what it was. Former, it's interesting. I, I, I'm going to back up and say government programs can be great. Um, a lot of the equip programs are awesome. Um, there's state programs that are awesome. Um, there's soil and water programs that are awesome for the county. But then there's also some. Um, I have to shut my truck door because I hear a tractor coming as my father's loaded her up. I don't know where he's going. I'm almost scared to ask. Um, <laughs> but uh, there are some programs that have happened in the past that kind of make you scratch your head. 
And yeah. uh, one of those had occurred on your place. Oh, yeah, in multiple areas throughout the property. Yeah. And, uh, it, and, you and, want to Yeah, let's, let's share, because I know there's a lot of people who have dealt with this. Um, because I, just all the travels, this is one program that's like, Oh man, every time they say it, I just, I, 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 sometimes I even visualize your property. Like, what is it? Yeah, Tell it, me what's going it, on. And it's not just Kansas. I mean, I've seen it in Missouri. I've seen it in Iowa. I see a I've lot in it. Illinois. Illinois too. Yeah. So what was yeah. the program? So the, the tree CRP program. And I, I think the appeal to the landowner initially is the, the cost share. They, they, there is a great cost share. It pays almost double what a grass CRP would pay. Mm. And uh, I think that's the big appeal. Obviously, there's more labor up front as far as you know planting trees. Yep. Um, but you know when they get a 10, 20 year contract, then you know they're looking at numbers. Yeah. And but the I think one you know one of the issues is is you know as far as the tree species allowed, you know it's pretty broad broad spectrum. So they may or may not be beneficial species. Um, and then. They may not oh. be beneficial, and from a deer standpoint, or you know, or any how long? How long? Yeah, exactly. How long was the contract? Um, obviously, it it went out when you were there, but how long do you think that contract was? I think it was fifteen or twenty. I'm not okay. for sure exactly, but yeah. I, I got the tail, a tail end of two years of it, so I got I got two years of payments. I was like, hey, this is great, you know? Yeah. But uh, I I tell you what, I ended up spending way more than that, um, having to deal with it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and I'll, I'll paint the picture for a lot of guys. So this was a uh, pretty close to riparian area, um, close to a little Creek and a couple little streams or ditches that ran through and pretty flat fertile ground for Southeast Kansas. And it was planted uh, a couple of these spots were dominated by cottonwoods, and sycamore. sycamore elm and elm and then i remember another one being a lot of uh pin oaks that's right yeah that's right and yep. a few areas which uh, i'm actually uh saving are a few areas are um bur oaks yeah and and so with those areas i'm actually preserving some of those and, and opening them up so it's more kind of an oak savanna you know? yep yep that's awesome you know matt it doesn't take listeners very long to realize that uh, Matt and I love bur oaks. So yes. as far as, you know, one thing I like about them is they got some fire resistance to them. So if you're running a fire, um, you know, a backfire, for instance, that, you know, and you got the right conditions, you're not going to kill them. Yeah, that's right. You're not. If they got the age to them. Yep, that's right. And, uh, you know, Aldo Leopold talked about their armor from the base of their, from the base of the butt log to the tips of their branches, they have armor all the way up. Um, That's right. So you I know it was, it was made for fire, and um, yeah. So when you when you kind of go in, I, m- I remember on the console we went in. It was like trying to assess what had gone on. You know, there's always that. Let's look back. Let's peel the curtain back and see what the past was. And one of those was, wow, there was a tree CRP uh, planting here, and uh, oof. It does not look good. Um, you know, the, the first five years of it was probably awesome. A lot of woody structure, a lot of woody browse available, a lot of grasses and forbs growing in and amongst it. But in the last 10, it's gotten pretty pretty sparse underneath it. 
and uh, it's only going to continue getting worse. And so one of the things I remember you you were doing was cleaning that up and trying to, because unfortunately there was no Cerisa lespedisa control within those trees. No, there, no, there wasn't. So, and I mean, it, it was ultimately station... a seed source to where no matter what you do out on the open acres, that is going to constantly be reseeding other areas close by. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. So, and, and, and it wasn't just one tree CRP area, tree arts, tree CRP area on this property. It was, I think I've got a total of six or seven. You know, the largest was about 20 acres. Um, the smallest was probably three acres. Yeah. And, and, um, like you mentioned, you know, the, the spacing of these trees was so close that it was inhibiting their own growth for that matter. And then any kind of little bit of sunlight that was coming up between them, you know, I was dealing with Cerecia. Yeah. And it was, it was basically a, a seed bank, you know? Yeah. Um, I just, and there's still, and there's still areas on the property, you know, I've, I've dealt with several of the tree CRP areas, but there's still some that are still there and I'm going to, you know, dealing with them, dealing with them slowly and, you know, not trying to do everything at once. Yeah. Um, yep. Yeah. yeah. It's it's um, it's impossible to get everything done in one year, um, in two years, and especially especially for you being a one man band um, most of the time. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And uh, I think that's what a lot of guys uh, deal with is you know it all sounds great, but it's just me here, and uh, so trying to find those ways to manage the property, um, big scale. So. You were doing TSI. You had invasive species control, and then converting these areas of a uh, of a uh, tree CRP. A um, couple other things that really came to mind when I think about your property is the um, old field management and trying to uh-huh. restore some areas that weren't quite CRP, weren't quite crop, but still open acres, and uh-huh. trying to get them more herbaceous and and a little less uh, Cerisa lespedisa and grass. Um, so a lot, so using herbicides again, using fire, um, and then, uh, just overall food plot and access, um, trying to lay out the farm correctly to where you could access it, um, easier. And, um, you know, you do all that. Um, what has been some of your favorite things to, 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 in, in managing the farm? Um, like what did you, what have you enjoyed the most? Mm, I mean, that's, that's, that's a great question. Um, yeah, yeah, believe it or not, some of that TSI work in the late winter, uh, you know, before, before February yeah. was, was actually, I mean, just being out there, I mean, not so often are you out there actually doing work when there's, you know, frost or, or frozen ground and snow, but man, that was really, actually, I look back, that was actually enjoyable. I was thinking I was going to dread it just because of how cold it was going to be, but when you're running a chainsaw and, you know, run a sprayer and you're, you're moving, moving, moving. Man, the cold is nothing. It feels yeah. great when you're actually it feels great. Off. And the deer sign is still there, so you can really kind of scout and work at the same time. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. You can see all your scrapes, all your rubs, and um, it was it was just very. I remember it being very just serene, you know, just you know the whiteness and the, the frozenness and and, uh, and your just the productivity. Yeah. Know? What now? My follow up question to that is: What have you seen in all the work that you've done? Uh, from a white-tailed deer standpoint, doing the work and seeing them benefit or use it quickly and feel like, man, every time I go by there, there's deer in that now. What is there any uh-huh. project that really sticks out? Mm, I would say um, 
some of the areas of TSI where it was more aggressive. Yeah. Uh, definitely those areas. Mm-hmm. The, you know, some of the bedding thickets actually that we've implemented um, with, with your advice as well. I would say some of those areas. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, the, the amount of, uh, you know, regeneration and, uh, you know, brushy cover and it's, it's really holding deer. Um, yeah. They're, they're bedding in it. Uh, you know, a lot of my stands are strategically located so that I capitalize on that. And some yep. of my food plots, you know, I was actually, we were putting actually some of these bedding tickets in, um, you know, strategically for some of these stand sites yeah, and uh, in wind directions and so forth. Uh, but yeah, I would say that, uh, and, and the food plots for that matter. I mean, there was no food on the property whatsoever Yeah, um, when I, when I bought it. And so that's, that's really, you know, having the combination, you know, everybody says it over and over, food and cover, food and cover. But that's, that's so true. Yeah. And, um, and I think that when, when people say that, it's hard for people to really grasp, like, yeah, we, we picture cover. But I, I think so many people miss when you say food and cover. And even we say it on this podcast. When we say cover, we mean true cover not just trees, not just mature no. forest. And so when you say food and cover, there is a difference between food plot or crop field because we're talking food that is that deer are actually using on a consistent basis. We're talking about cover that's so dense that deer use it on a consistent basis. And if you have those, both of those, your food plots are at peak performance and your cover is really dense and and has the ability to hold mature bucks, then you get to see a whole new world uh, in comparison to like places that you and I grew up where it was just like, we have low quality uh, food and we have low quality cover. This is going to be a slow season. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So big mature pines, big mature oaks. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. And I think of, uh, and I asked that question, I didn't know how you were going to answer it, but I, I'm not shocked at all that, the most enjoyable was the timber management and some of the quickest return or seeing the deer utilize it the most was timber management. Um, and then of course food plots. So, um, you know, there, there's close, no close reason. Second or, oh, go ahead. Close second or third, I was going to tell you was obviously fire. I mean, Oh yeah. Uh, yes. The controlled burns. Oh my goodness. Yeah. You know, watch, watching a fire consume a CRP field and, and, and having it planned correctly and seeing it just all, you know, basically put itself out in the middle. Like, oh, yeah, that's well, satisfying. Well, you said it. You you said the key word because CRP burning for a lot of people is scary, scary, scary. But you said controlled burn. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, a lot of times those CRP fields can quickly become uncontrolled. And that's the scary part. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, the burning. And, and so you're in southeast Kansas. Good deer, obviously, in the area. But the other thing that you have going for you is is uh, quail. How are right. the quail doing on your place? And you can share the bad so, news if if you want. Yeah, so from a, from a historical perspective, this area used to be, I mean, incredible. So I hear, um, you know, many of the, the the guys you talk to that are in their sixties and seventies, that's what they that's what was their favorite pastime overall, quail hunting. Yeah. So um, they'll talk year off. But as, but as far as the, the property when I got it. I had occasionally jumped a quail or two, you know, I would definitely hear whistles, um, depending on the time of year. And, you know, since I've slowly implemented, you know, some, mainly eradicating the Ceresia, you know, I'm probably holding two or three cubbies right now That's uh, awesome. any given time on the property. Yeah. We actually I saw mean, a covey the day we worked. I remember that yep. now. Yep. Yep. On the north side. 
Yeah. And last this actually was last year. I uh, I brought a friend up with a dog, and we didn't shoot any. Obviously, we just wanted to kind of do a, a quail count, and yep. you know, we only got into one of those cubbies, and and but still very rewarding to you know get his dog in there and work work that cubby. Yeah, that's awesome. So, do you feel like they're doing better now, or still about the same as what they were? Man, I. It's hard to know. I think I'll know better this spring. Okay. But I, I feel like um, maybe a little bit better from the last time you were there. Yeah. But uh, well, at least yeah, it's kinda, not declining. That's in, right. In and this day and age, as long as you're not declining too sharply, it's a it's a win. My turkeys, though, I will say, uh, have improved and improved quite a bit. And as far as an area perspective, you know, Kansas changed their 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 law recently, where it's a one bird limit for yep. spring turkey season. Yeah. And the reason they did so is because the turkey declined, not just here, but everywhere, but Kansas. And, uh, but our area, I would say is, is kind of a standout. Uh, you know, I, I mean, ours could easily be a two bird limit. And, uh, do you feel like yeah. they implemented that? What, two springs ago? That's right. So did you feel like there's more turkeys now just in two years after that? Or do you, I mean, it's one bird per hunter that's changing. So unless you're, place was not getting over hunted or that region you probably wouldn't notice a difference but do you feel like there's been any difference i think i think on my area like my farm and, the, and a little bit of surrounding i think our hatches are better i mean i okay. have been just because of the habitat work i really do yeah uh, and i know this year great hatch almost uh seems like across the country at least across the midwest more people are seeing They've been saying that there's better hatches this year. So I'm hopeful that even the people where turkeys were really struggling are going to be like, oh, okay, yep, we're starting to have a few, and maybe they'll get motivated to do more work to make sure that we don't have to go through what we've gone through the last five years. Yep. I, yep. I really think the, those controlled burns, you know, having those fields broke up and, yep. you know, three three parts and having your burns, you know, broken up on that, on that basically – on a uh, every three year, this piece, this piece, this piece. So you have brood cover, nest cover. Yep. And you have you have areas where they can escape, and, uh, and I think that's big. Yep. No doubt. No doubt. And have you done? I know I laid out man, ten years worth of edge feathering on your place. How much edge yes. feathering have you been able to complete? And have you noticed any kind of? Uh, you know, you could say late winter use from the deer. Like, what have you noticed in in your edge feathering? So I will say that's the one thing I have not like even tackled except for the TSI that I've done along all the tree yep. edges. Okay. You know, I haven't done any heavy uh, edge feathering at this point. Yeah. I, um, I, I remember we laid that out going, this is lower on the priority list, but at some point this would really start helping your quail numbers and as yep. well as the deer and your hunting. So, uh, but man, you had a, you had, you were in the trenches when it came to Cerisa Lespedeza control. Um, so I'm I'm just happy that you're plugging away at that. But so now we talked all about the habitat, and let's dive into some of last year's hunts. And then before we finish this podcast up, uh, I want to hear about kind of this this fall and how that's going. So um, you know, last year the first hunt that people are going to see is your Kansas hunt last year, the same property that we've been talking about. And um, we're gonna let's hear a little bit about you know the strategy that went into that hunt. Yeah, absolutely. So. Um, I think where to start. So, you know, I would say on this one, you know, you know, cameras really changed the game for everyone. And, you know, this deer, I owe credit to trail cameras and, you know, this deer didn't move on to, on to me. I was doing card checks on a every week and a half, you know, two week 
uh, basis. And uh, this, this buck moved on to me probably the very tail end of October. Yeah. And, you know, late for a fall shift, I think mainly it moved on to me habitat, you know, food. Yep. And, and, and you know, I already had bedding tickets started. Yep. And the TSI had been already implemented a year before. And he was actually a deer that had never, never been on me. He was a five-year-old buck. Um, he lived on a neighboring property. I knew about him just because I've got great neighbors and we've got good relationships. And uh, we, we strategized together. That's awesome. And Yeah. And so when he, he moved on to me, I thought it was just going to be a, you know, a one-time showing. But nope. I mean, Stuck he moved around. on to me. Yeah. And so like, all right, well. And uh, so that, you know, the particular stand uh, site on the property that um, he happened to be, you know, utilizing that area. It was a scrape line through there. There was a grid bedding thicket. There was a two food plots in that area. And uh, I think the date on that one was November 10th. And I, I actually stayed off the property that whole first part of November. You know, our weather was warm last year. It was unusually warm rut, if uh, you remember. Yeah. And so I, you know, I knew that um, we had that cold front predicted for about a week out. And so I just stayed off the property and literally the, the, I take that back the very tail end of October, I hunted one or two times, but, uh, as far as the rut time, uh, November 10th, I stayed off the property until that date and I got on stand that morning. I, that front didn't roll in until about 10 o'clock that day, but, uh, got on stand that morning early. It was an okay morning, but I think it was about nine o'clock. We had this giant front move through, uh, dropped our temperatures 20 degrees. And, uh, I actually, I, you know, I had two options. I could stay on the stand and stick it out with high winds and everything was coming. I was like, you know what? I'm going to go to my buddy's place, get some coffee, have some pie. And, and then right when this thing is in the midst of almost going through, I'm going to get back in with the, you know, with that rain, utilize the rain actually to get back in the stand. That's what I did. And so right as that cleared out, um, had a great eight point chasing a doe mm. right across the food plot. Couldn't even get the camera, you know, set up. That's how quick it happened. Yep. And, uh, within, I would say seven, eight minutes of that, had some does move through one corner that looked, looked hot. Yep. Um, and you know, I was expecting a buck to come behind them. I got the camera up, held it, held it, held it, nothing. And then within probably another eight minutes or so, you know, this five-year-old 10, you know, the one that I've been talking about yep. moved through very, very quickly. And, uh, on, on those does. And I, you know, once he went through the gap, I didn't have the camera. I couldn't get it on him that quick. Um, did some doe bleats and then immediately did a buck grunt, you know, basically just trying to fool this guy thinking his does had came my way yep. and somebody was with him. So and he disappeared and I'm just waiting, waiting. Next thing I know, you'll see the camera on this, on this video. I just turned around a tree. I just got a kind of a little glimpse of something out of the corner of my eye. And that's what, that was him coming down wind, basically a scent check me. Yep. Or, or sent check his does. Yep. And, uh, there was a, the, the stand was set up so that there's a, there's a basically a creek and I, I set the, set the stand up so that, it, you know, you hunt it on a wind, it pushes your, your wind across that creek, you know, any kind of Southwest wind and, uh, or any kind of Westerly wind. Yep. And, uh, and that's what it did. It pushed, it pinched him right there between the stand, the food plot in that creek. And, uh, how far man, were you from like dense cover, maybe a bedding thicket or a heavy TSI? Yeah. So I had, I had CRP to one direction, my West. Yep. I had a bedding, th bedding thicket that was probably within 
120 yards, yeah. and then I had one of those three RCP, three CRPs that is not so great betting, but yeah, you know, cover uh, within you know probably 75 yards. Yeah. So and then a food plot out in front, kind of to the northwest food, food of you. That's right. Yeah. So basically, and you had entered. And and your wind's blowing back with a west or a northwest wind kind of back to the southeast or the east of you. So this deer has the ability to either go into the food plot like some of the does and other deer had or kind of just same thing, scent check that food plot or kind of come from there f- from bedding thicket going behind downwind side of the food plot going over to grass CRP to your west. Um, and, you know, that time of year, November 10th-ish, um, is a great time of the year to be hunting with your nose, if you will. Nailed it. Yeah, you nailed it. Yes, yeah, so hunting, hunting the downwind side of you know those bedding thickets or or food plots for that matter. Um, you know, because those, those cruising bucks are um, typically not entering the field or going out in them. I mean, they will sometimes, but yeah. um, they're they're traveling those downwind sides. Yep. That's right. That's right. And you were able to capitalize and stuck an arrow in him. Got. It all on film, which is just incredible for self-filming. I don't know if any of our listeners are real big into self-filming, but it is a chore. Um, it is definitely a chore, and so you were able to get it done, which is just phenomenal, and I'm excited to hear the feedback of people watching this hunt and hopefully being motivated, doing habitat work, able to capitalize on a mature buck, doing exactly really what you want, using using his nose, using the habitat features, and you were able to get into that into that bow range circle uh, and pull it all together. No, I, and thank you. I appreciate that. But um, I, w- I would say that those who are interested in self-filming, very, very challenging, but so rewarding, uh, especially when it all comes together. And it will, you know, if you stick with it. Yeah. So. And and it's not, you know, as we talk about your next hunt, it's not doom and gloom if you if he walks just out of frame. You capture the whole hunt. You just miss the very last second um, when he, when he stepped right out of frame. Which is, that's, right. that's just what happens when you're self-filming. You can't always get the perfect kill shot. You're not always going to be zoomed in tight on the deer. It's it's more of a, a realistic approach to me. Like when you watch a self-film hunt, it's like this is, you know, this is a man, his camera, and the wildlife. Um, and it's and it's kind of a, a really true r- r- rawness to it. Yeah. And, and unlike, you know, those who make a living doing this, I do not. And so the hunting is my priority hundred percent. You know, if it, yep. if it means killing, killing that deer, I'm yeah. going to kill the deer as opposed <laughs> to get footage of them. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, um, yeah, no, that, and so Kansas just awesome. And then you kick right over into the Missouri farm, um, on the Missouri hunt and, um, uh, tell us a little bit about that hunt. Yeah, so I'm fortunate enough to live, you know, or have this property up here close enough to Missouri side that you can, you know, you can capitalize on both seasons. And um, I've got a small, small piece of acreage over there. You know, you don't have to have a big piece of acreage. And, you know, I started that um, probably about 2015, that property. And it was an an overgrown pecan grove. Um, Actually cleaned it up so that hopefully it can be in production at some point. But when it, since it's not, I'm I'm not going to, I'm not going to mow it. It's basically a um it's almost like a, a crp in the midst of you know a pecan grove very it's like a savannah yeah you know, a pecan savannah and so in one corner of that um that uh capitalized on the wind in that area is a little hidey hole food plot and all i've done for that i've never taken the equipment in there 
all I do is start with a backpack sprayer in the very, you know, late spring, early summer. And I just spray it out with a, you know, non-selective herbicide. I, you know, I use Roundup, you can yeah. use Liberlink or whatever else. And I spray it about three times uh, and basically keep everything suppressed down. And then I'll usually just basically broadcast on it, you know, about double what you'd normally do on a typical food plot, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, I've done soil test on it. You know, apply lime and fertilizer. So it's all with a hand broadcast spreader. Mm. Wow. And so, uh, that year, I think I used Bounty Hunter yep. and Zero Rye. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, yep. Awesome. And so Buck just cruising through overgrown pecan grove and able to capitalize on it. Oh, yeah. So yep. uh, this is on a corner of it. And so that they, they use it for bedding and for, you know, the does use it for escape cover. Yeah. Uh, and uh, a lot of chasing going out there. And, you know, this one, I think, I think both those deer actually are around midday. And that's another, another point I'll make is, you know, there, there's certain times of the year that those, those middle of the day or all day sits are worthwhile. And, and, you know, I would say that, that peak of the rut at time, even if, even if a doe is locked or a buck's locked down with a doe, you know, oftentimes that doe beds, he may get up and he may move within 150, 200 yards of her. Yeah. You know, just checking things out. And yeah. then he does that often midday. Oh man. Yeah. I, I, it, I'm not a guy who likes to set. I got way too much ADHD and way too much going on <laughs> to set all day. But if you're going to do it, man, early November to mid November is the time to do it. That's right. That, and that's about the only time I'll ever even think about doing it. Yeah. And, uh, and it paid off. I mean, both those days I, I wouldn't have killed otherwise. Oh man. Well, there you go. Maybe that it's time to set all day just from this podcast. So, um, especially if you're around dense cover, like to me in, in starting to use, you know, the first bedding cut we ever did was probably 2014, maybe 2015. I can't remember where it was like, let's hammer it and see what happens. And, uh, once you start hunting around that, you're like, you know, the lockdown phase, um, or warm days in November, they don't concern me as much because I'm just hunting close to cover. And I know deer are there. It's not set on a food plot. I hope they get here before dark or set on a, uh, in a CRP, um, grass and go, ah, well, I hope they're moving through here. When you get in those dense pockets, you're like, I know there's deer in there. It's just a matter of time if it's one, or it's just a matter of if it's, if it's one I want to shoot. Yep. Yeah. So, yep. Aaron, I can't thank you enough for coming on. Guys, I encourage you to watch these videos on YouTube and, and see it all unfold. And, and uh, man, give props to Aaron for pulling it all together. There's some really cool, you know, the raccoon that appeared to be sleeping in the tree uh, <laughs> was was really cool. Um, there was a lot of just really good B-roll shots of animal uh, of deer just doing their thing. And, and uh, man, for it's something I hope you're proud of for, for self-filming. Um, well, man, thank you so much. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I, I enjoyed it so much. And actually all that B-roll footage, man, yeah. that makes that all day sick go by. That's right. It's like, I got plenty of batteries. This is fun. Let's see what I can do with this camera. And, and it sure beats the heck out of sitting there on your phone, not really paying much attention. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> so Aaron, appreciate it. I know you're getting ready to head to the stand. So, uh, we're going to get off here and, uh, man, um, guys, thanks again. And we'll catch you all next week. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah.